Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. Well, I note that uh, the comrades who drew up the agenda of this important school on philosophy began with epistemology. Now then, if you weren't already terrified before the start of this uh, session, you'd be completely terrified by this word. Epistemology, what on earth does it mean? Well, it is apparently a difficult word. It's taken from the Greek, ancient Greek, like many other words in philosophy. But, you know, the, the, the essential meaning of the word is quite simple. Epistemology, in philosophical sense, means the theory of knowledge. Something that students are well aware of. I don't know. If you have, I assume some students have some knowledge of some things anyway, but then I've always been an optimist. Now then, uh, this, is, this actually is one of the most fundamental questions in history of philosophy. It is neither more nor less. It's the relationship of thinking to being. And this is, a, this is important. It's the, actually, it's the beginning of all philo- philosophy. You think about it. Because we, we, we have to ask ourselves the question, what do I know and how do I know it? Although Socrates, when he went to the Delphic Oracle, I like this story, and the Delphic Oracle asked him, what do you know? He answered quite sensibly, I know that I know nothing. I wish most people was intel- as wise as Socrates. And I know, after all the years I spent studying philosophy and Marxism, I'll tell you frankly, I know that I know nothing. And that made Socrates the wisest man in all of Athens. But we'll come back to that perhaps another time. Now, this, of course, occupies a central place in, in, in philosophy. And the so-called, it's known in philosophy as the subject-object problem. And it's occupied the central attention of philosophers for centuries. It's basically concerned with an analysis of human experience. And uh, what, what, what within experience is known as objective, what is objective and what is subjective. In other words, how do we know the world outside us? And this question is posed in, traditionally in philosophy in terms of a dichotomy. Now, that's the first mistake. That's the first great error of philosophy. Uh, there's a dichotomy between the thinking subject, I, me, myself, and the object of thought, the external world. Okay? Well, now that you've had a basic lesson in ancient Greek, let's pass, let's proceed to Latin. How is your Latin these days? Not very good from what I, what I know. What do they teach, these, what do they teach the, the, you guys these days, for goodness sake? They don't even teach Latin anymore. In my day, it was compulsory. You know, we used to have a saying when I was in school. What was it? Let me remember. Oh, yes. Latin is an ancient language, as old as old could be. It killed the ancient Britons, and now it's killing me. But that's another matter. Um, Now then, how is your Latin? Since it's probably a bit rusty, so we'd be generous and say it's rusty. Let's try with a little bit of revision. Cogito ergo sum. Have you ever heard that? Cogito ergo sum, or as the English uh, murderers of Latin would put it, cogito ergo sum. Cogito gives you a clue to the meaning of the sentence. Cogito, to cogitate is to think, isn't it? To, to, to meditate. And this was perhaps the most famous phrase of one of the most famous figures in the history of philosophy, the French philosopher René Descartes. I think... He said, therefore I am. Now, Descartes was was undoubtedly a great philosopher. No question about that. But his contribution to the 
At a time when philosophy and science, which by the way were the same thing, you don't know if you know that, that for centuries, philosophy and science were the same thing. Isaac Newton regarded himself as a philosopher. He was a bad philosopher, not a bad scientist, I suppose. But anyway, this was at a time when, when, when human thought was struggling to free itself from the shackles of religion, from that terrible dictatorship of the church, which which held up human progress for centuries. For a thousand years, it was paralyzed by this dead hand of religion. Religion's always been an enemy of progress in general and an enemy of science and knowledge in particular. So Descartes was part of this attempt to, to, to establish a rational view of things. And he was a great philosopher, no doubt about it, who made many advances in philosophy and indeed in science also. But he, he did make a serious blunder by introducing the notion of dualism into this question of, uh, of thinking. Uh, Descartes depicts mind and body as two entirely separate substances. Now, here's the mistake, you see. He considered thought and, 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 and matter as being something fundamentally different. Hence the, the dual element, the, dual, the duality. And the celebrated phrase which he's so famous for, I think, therefore, I am, which is apparently very logical and apparently self-explanatory, is an explanation which explains precisely nothing. Think about it. He might just as well have said, I am, therefore, I think. Since it is self-evident that being presupposes everything else, including thought, if it comes to that. But uh, he said what he said, and thereby caused a lot of confusion for future generations. And the mistake is, let's underline this point, as a starting point. The mistake is to treat consciousness as a thing, as something separate and apart from matter, from being as an independent uh, entity, separate from human sensuous activity. Uh, now, there, there is, to start with, there, there's immediately an insurmountable, insurmountable difficulty in uh, dualism, which is this. If it is true that mind, thought, ideas, and so on, are really entirely different to the physical body, the brain and the nervous system, and the external world, how can they interact? They can't, if you think it's entirely different, it's not clear at all how they could ever interact. They can't. Of course, nowadays, and this is the point of view, I don't want to be unfair and take it, he was a brilliant thinker, not to worry about it, but the science of his time did not admit the state of human knowledge at that time, which is what the, uh, the, uh, 18th, the early 18th, late, late to 70th century, really, uh, Descartes didn't know what we know today about uh, the, the, the workings of nature. He didn't know anything about the world of molecules, atoms, subatomic particles, or indeed the electrical impulses that govern the workings of the brain. By the way, the human brain, I don't know if you know this, the human brain is the most complex organism in the entire universe that's known to us. That's an interesting thought. And we're still in the process of penetrating the secrets of how our brain actually works, but we know a great deal about it. Don't worry about that. And in place of a, materia, a mysterious soul, which Descartes had a very graphic phrase, I think he referred to it as the, the ghost in the machine. The ghost, as if there's a kind of ghost inside ourselves, the soul. And this comes from very, this concept, but it comes and it's at the base, not just of idealism, but of religion, of course. It comes from very primitive to this idea that there's some kind of mysterious spirit inside of us. And the reason this comes from primitive times, from the earliest times, from dreams, for example. When you're asleep, your body is inert, and yet something, and yet you get up and you perform all kinds of mysterious miraculous tasks and so on. So the soul appears to escape from the body. And from this conception, there's, there's only a, a short step to the idea of uh, that when you die, uh, you, this soul, this spirit, this ghost in the machine continues somehow to exist. Life after death, you know, which is the basis, of, particularly of Christianity, also of, of other religions. Now, the discoveries of modern science actually have, 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 let's get clear, let's be clear about this. The discoveries of modern science, although incomplete, have forever banished 
the notion of consciousness as being an independent thing. It is not. Consciousness is a natural result, if you like, a feature of electronic impulses in the brain, which is part of the nervous central nervous system, the brain and, and the body and so on. And yet, despite all the advances of science, this is an interesting point here, this is a dialectical contradiction. Despite all the advances of human thought and science for the last 2,000 years, strange as it may seem, this mystical nonsense about the soul and life after death and all this, it's got plenty of advocates, e e even in, in, in the 21st century, even among scientists. I'll never forget when the Americans put the first man on the moon and he was in his spaceships uh, circulating the Earth. It was Christmas Day, I believe. I remember it. Just imagine this. This guy fitted out with all his most modern apparatus of space travel and his spacesuit and his helmet and all the rest of it. And he was asked to give a message to humanity on the human on Christmas Day. And for, out of the whole of human literature, which is considerable, as you know, he chose what? The first sentence of the book of Genesis from the Bible, which you all know, of course. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Here's this guy with his modern trappings of all the achievements of technology, and he's repeating the primitive ideas which have come from the caves, from the most primitive fears and uh, superstitions of man in a, in a state of savagery, if you like. I mean, this is just, that itself is an indicator, a dialectical contradiction. Now, the chair at the beginning of the meeting mentioned the question of idealism and materialism. And it's true that the two main schools of thought, overwhelmingly the main currents in philosophical thought for the last 2,000 years or more, have been idealism and materialism. Now, I won't go into detail because it's not, not really the subject of this talk. It's constantly a separate subject. But the, the idealist trend in philosophy is at least as old as Plato and Pythagoras. Very, very old uh, idea. <clears throat> Who saw the physical world, the material world, as a poor imitation of a perfect idea, hence idealism. By the way, the word Greek word idea doesn't actually mean idea at all. It means form, actually. The perfect form that existed somewhere, we don't know where, before the world ever came into existence. Now, uh, and everything that we have and everything we have is merely a crude imitation of this pure ideal, you know, this pure form. If this idea sounds a bit strange, I'm very sorry, I apologize, it's because it is very strange, very strange indeed. And it flies in the face of all the discoveries of science for the last two and a half thousand years. Yes, it is, but it's very persistent, very persistent. In the form of religion is particularly here. Uh, and religion and idealism are very closely linked. I won't say not exactly the same, but if you scratch an idealist enough, you will come across religion, basically. At the roots of it, it is at the roots of it. And it's very persistent. It's very persistent. And it's persistent. It emerges under different guises. You see this in the history of philosophy. It emerges in different guises. Uh, how do we explain this strange phenomenon and the persistence of this irrational? It is completely irrational, for God's sake. God's sake, not quite. For Marx's sake, then. It's completely irrational. Why is it so persistent? You've got scientists who believe in this guff. And intelligent, supposedly intelligent men and women, especially in academia, but not only in academia, that believe in God and go to church and say their prayers and believe in the life after death, for goodness sake. It's irrational. The problem is, of course, that men and women are not necessarily rational beings and very frequently are drawn to irrational views and feelings and sentiments as a moth is drawn to a lighted candle. It's a regrettable fact, but it is a fact. And this fact, of course, fits in very nicely with the religious lobby. That's why it's so powerful. But in any case, we are diverting. Just to say this, I just repeat the point that all forms of idealism, without exception, ultimately lead back to, and must lead back, invariably to religion. You better believe it. <laughs> Hiding behind the respectable intellectual facade, these constructs, 
so carefully put together by these smart, smart Alex of the university philosophy departments, is lurking, is lurking religion and superstition, neither more nor less. Now, in Ludwig Feuerbach, a remarkable book by Frederick Engels, which you must all read and study, uh, he deals with this question. He deals with, with, the, with, with the problem of knowledge, the relation of thinking to being. And he, he asks, he says the following. In what, I quote with your permission from Ludwig Feuerbach. In what relation do our thoughts about the world, the world surrounding us, stand to this real, to this, uh, this world itself? Is our thinking capable of the cognition of the real world that comes to the heart of the matter? Are we able in our ideas and notions of the real world to produce a correct reflection of reality? And he goes on, this is interesting. He goes on, he says, the overwhelming majority of philosophers give an affirmative answer to this question. That's what he said. By the way, the chair was a little bit unkind on the idealists. Idealism, idealism, all idealism is not necessarily a jumble of confused ideas. It can be remarkably consistent and rational, particularly objective idealism, such as Plato, and particularly Hegel. And we, are not, we owe a lot to Hegel, by the way. But then he, he adds, in addition to this, there is a set of different philosophers. Now, this comes close to what we're going to consider today. There is a set of different philosophers, those who question the possibility of any cognition, or at least an exhaustive cognition of the world. To them, among the more modern ones, belong Hume and Kant. And they have played a very important role in philosophical development. This is Engels. So therefore, you see, really speaking, there are three main currents in philosophy, not two. There is consistent materialism, there's consistent idealism, but there's also subjective idealism. Now, that's an interesting part, which we'll deal with. The latter school, of course, was, was given its, its highest, fullest expression in the philosophy of the great German philosopher, uh, 18th century philosopher, Immanuel Kant. Uh, Hume and Kant, by the way, the two philosophers that Engels mentions here, uh, are the true ancestors of uh, logical positivism. And if it comes to that, well, I'm being a bit unkind of it, because that is gobbledygook, postmodernism. That certainly merits the expression which I'll share give to it. It's just a massive, massive confusion and uh, stupidities from start to finish. But the, the, their idea, was, was the, the idea of Hume and Kant, was to fence off yeah, the appearance of things from the from from the from from the, the thing in itself. They said, they said, all right, you can you can appreciate the outer appearance of things, but you can never know the world in itself. That's quite a sophisticated argument, but we come to that now. Side by side with idealism, of course, there's the opposite uh, philosophical tendency: materialism. We are materialists. Marxism is materialism, dialectical materialism. This appears, it existed with the ancient Greeks, marvelous material, particularly the early pre-Socratic philosophers that I'm particularly fond of, were all materialists. Oh, yes. And this, is, this is remarkable stuff. But it, 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 it was drowned out then by idealism, by Christianity in particular, it was crushed in, in uh, prohibited in the Middle Ages, of course. But it reemerges with the renewed strength of the, about the time of the Renaissance, and uh, 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 when philosophy and science, as I said, were trying to assert, reassert themselves after the dead end, the, the barren desert of uh, obscurantism under the Christian Church in the Middle Ages. And emerging from this dark night of the Middle Ages, it, this, this initially took the form, this reaction, this healthy reaction, took the form initially of empiricism, something we'll be discussing at some length today, which insisted on the superiority, on the necessity of a scrupulous examination of the facts and experiment over and observation over religious dogma. You know, this, this is, this is a, a gigantic leap forward. It's the birth of real science, where science begins to separate itself from philosophy, as a matter of fact. It triumphs in particular in Protestant England, 
where the bourgeoisie had overthrown the absolutist feudal order and the rule of the Catholic Church. It was pioneered in this country by men like great thinkers like Francis Bacon, Locke and uh, Hobbes in particular. And these people, by the way, were materialists. These, these men were materialists. And uh, they were also empiricists, that's the point. They were, there's a particular kind of materialism, which is known as empiricism, which has been the dominant mode of thought in all Anglo-Saxon countries, including the United States, ever since then. It exerts a powerful influence. Now, what is this empiricism? Well, empiricism essentially uh, argues that immediate uh, experience, the, the experience of our senses, you know, I see, I hear, I touch, and so on, uh, is all that is required, all that is needed to understand the world. No, no, no theoretical abstractions or sort of generalizations are necessary. All of the impressive states, and by the way, they, they start with the, with a very important expression. Uh, make note of this. This this is where it all starts. I interpret the world through my senses. Of course, of course, can't ex you can't interpret it any other way. You know. This was sta clearly stated by John Locke, a great English materialist, in the 17th century, when he said, there is nothing in our mind, this is an important statement of a materialist, there is nothing in the, in the mind that was not previously in our senses. That's what he said. Now, we feel very much at home with this uh, essentially materialist proposition, it appears to say all that is necessary to be said concerning human understanding. That was the name of Locke's book, I think, Essays Concern, an essay concerning human understanding. Yes, but this empiricism, this, this empiricism rather, played a colossally progressive role, revolutionary, revolutionized human thought and science. All of our science comes from this. It firmly established observation and experiment as the basis, as opposed to religious dogma which had been the, the case before. It played a revolutionary role, but there was a problem. Empiricism in the narrow sense has uh, limitations, important limitations, which subsequently became exposed when it was vulgarized and distorted by Hume, the Scottish uh, philosopher, and Barclay, George Barclay. Bishop Barclay, the Bishop of Cloyne in Ireland, although he's an Englishman. Okay. Now, what is the reason? I'm particularly going to concentrate here on, on Bishop Barclay, which Lenin deals with extensively in a book which we just republished. Well read is published. I hope you've read it. I wrote an introduction to it. Um, materialism and imperial criticism. And it's not an accident that Lenin deals at length with this uh, perhaps somewhat obscure philosophy, not that obscure, he's well known to philosophy, ought to be well known to philosophy students, anyway, George Bishop Barclay. It's not an accident because subjective idealism comes from him, comes from this idea which he put forward. By the way, he put it forward much more coherently than the... the Postmodernist garbage of the today. You know, he was a he was a fine writer, uh, Bishop Barty, a very capable, a very intelligent man, completely actionary, of course. And he was a dedicated enemy of science and a defender of religion. Of course, that was his that was his starting point. Be sure of it. That was the starting point of this stuff. And George Barty, Bishop Barty realized there was a tremendous threat to the church from the rise of science, particularly the rise of people like Isaac Newton, and that this new science was dangerous because it had materialist implications, atheist implications. I won't go into that, but it, he was right. He wasn't wrong. Well, uh, Isaac Newton developed the idea of a, of a clockwork uh, universe. It's true that because of the limitations of Isaac's, Isaac Newton's uh, mechanism, me mechani mechanical approach, which regarded ma matter as something inert. You see, that was the limitation of this empiricism. Matter seemed to be something that was inert, had no life in it, okay? And therefore, it required always an e external impulse. You get that in mechanics, you know. It's, mechanics is all about pushing 
pulling, lifting, inertia, and so on, as you know. Okay, so this whole, un whole universe required an initial Im impulse from without. This was, this was the Almighty, this was God. But all that God had to do was to make a little push like this thing with his finger. And the whole clockwork universe started operating according to his laws. And God, really speaking, had nothing to do after that. Nothing whatsoever to do with it. The universe worked, the clockwork universe functioned quite adequately without any, any divine intervention at all. It's rather a restricted role for God. Yes, this, this, this was definitely dangerous stuff from the standpoint of Bishop Barclay who set out deliberately to work out a philosophical answer to this. And how did he answer materialism and science? He, he was very clever, he very cleverly used the arguments of empiricism in the narrow sense to refute materialism and defend religion. How did he accomplish this? Well, quite easily. Quite easily. Uh, let me see. You see, he asserted that matter, the material world, didn't exist. Now, how do you get at that? How do you get to that? Well, uh, obviously, let's go back to this assertion made by Locke, you know, or what I've said earlier. I interpret the world through my senses. That's absolutely correct. Now, let's give you an example. Look, take, take this. You know what that is? Let's see if I can get it on the screen. No, I, can I? Can I? Yes, there we are. You know what that is? I think you do. It's called an orange. Yeah? Okay. Now, ladies and gentlemen, can I get it on the screen again? Here we are. Uh, can I assert that this orange exists? No, I can't. All I can assert is that, is that I see it, I touch it, I smell it, I eat it, I taste it. In other words, all I can really know that exists is my, is my senses. That's all. Yeah. And without my senses, now you see the, the, the orange has disappeared. The orange, really speaking, has no existence. This is existence, the existence of the objective world, you know, is entirely dependent on the observer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, Locke said, "There's nothing, uh, nothing in, in in the mind that was not first in the senses." Berkeley uh, asserted something different: "To be is to be observed." He said, "Now that's a statement. Which it seems incredible, by the way, and it is incredible, but it's persisted, and by God, it's had an influence even on science." Yeah, through logical positivism, which I'll deal with later on, this, this nonsense has been smuggled into modern science. For example, in, the, in quantum mechanics, through Heisenberg, who, by the way, was a philosophical, a, a terrible reactionary, a Nazi, who, when he was a, a younger man, participated in 1919 in, in the massacring of the German workers uh, in the Freikorps, of which he was an active member. And he was philosophically, he was uh, interested in philosophy. He was a complete idealist, determined to introduce idealist nonsense into, into science. And he succeeded. By God, he succeeded. The idea persists that uh, with subatomic particles or so, that they only exist when they're observed, you see. This, this is actually stated. The, the, uh, the uncertainty principle, so-called, of Werner Heisenberg, look into it, you'll see it. There's nothing scientific about it, it's not, not to do with science. This is smuggling philosophical idealist contraband into science, and a lot of that goes on, by the way. You better believe it. Now, by the way, there's a slight problem for Bishop Barclay, which you might be able to detect. Ultimately, where does this lead? Think about it. If all I can know is my senses. My senses, not yours, because you don't exist. Ladies and gentlemen, friends and comrades, you don't exist. You, there's nothing out there. I, I'm looking at the screen and I'm looking at... Well, the screen doesn't exist for the start. I close my eyes. It doesn't exist, of course. If I can only know my, my senses... That inevitably leads us... Let's go back to Latin again. Your Latin needs attention. 
It leads to solipsism. That's where it leads. It can't lead anywhere else. That only I exist. The rest is a figment of my imagination. You're all a figment. I don't know why the hell I'm talking to you because you're a figment of my imagination. I'm talking to myself. I should be taken for to the nearest mental hospital for examination. You know, spending an hour talking to myself. But there you are. Yeah. Solipsism, it comes from the Latin solo ipsus, only I myself, only I must exist. Bertrand Russell, actually, he made a very entertaining anecdote. He said, I once met a, a lady at a party who, who, who assured me that she was a solipsist, and she wondered why there weren't more of them. <laughs> That's quite amusing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all right, amusing at a joke, but Bertrand Russell wasn't capable of answering uh, the case of subjective idealism, which lies at the basis of this, and which influenced him as much as anybody else. The problem is, of course, for Barclay, if that's the case, then it applies to God as well, doesn't it? God is also a figment of my imagination. Bishop Bachman is a figment of my imagination. You know, this, this really is crazy stuff. It's crazy. Yeah, but it's had an effect, for goodness sake. By God, it's had an effect on Western philosophy ever since. Now, of course, uh, um, these ideas were subsequently had an influence on Immanuel Kant, who again was, a, well, again, he was a great philosopher, Kant. There's no question he affected a, a a philosophical revolution. He was an idealist, but he was a, you know, he was a, a brilliant thinker. He made remarkable and uh, brilliant discoveries, not just in, in philosophy, but in in, uh, in science, notably in uh, cosmology. But I won't, I won't go, that falls outside this discussion. But in the field of philosophy, he failed to, to, to he failed to overcome the problem of which we discussed earlier of, of dualism. That is to say, he conceived of perception of uh, of uh, consciousness as a barrier, not, not as something that connects us with the external world, but as a kind of barrier. Uh, by the way, Kant was not the same as Bishop Berkeley. He, he did accept the existence of the objective world. He didn't say that about him. He, he even recognized that. Yeah, but he, 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 he tried to impose a, a limit on what could be understood. He said, you... Basically, his argument was you can under, you can uh, you can know what your senses tell you can know appearances, but you can't know the essence of something, which lies outside of human experience, you know, and could not be known. He tried to establish an absolute barrier to, to cognition. There's the thing, the thing that we're looking at, but there's also what he called the thing in itself, Ding and sich in German. With, in, in Jenseits, on the other side, he said, on the other side. We'll come back to that uh, in, in a moment. But he was answered, by the way, comprehensively by Kant, by, by Hegel, another idealist. But whereas Kant tended towards subjective idealism, Hegel was an, was an objective idealist. Uh, and like, as, as an objective, Hegel didn't deny the existence of the world and its laws, not at all. No, 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 no. The only thing is that he maintained stubbornly, because <laughs> he was an idealist, that this the whole of the, unit, the, the material world was just a reflection of the absolute idea. I won't go into that, that's another matter. But he did make a, 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 an enormous progress in science. He answered this. Now, let's let's go back to this argument about Sense perception. Sense perception, as Locke correctly pointed out, is indeed the basis of all our knowledge. We're not arguing with that. That's correct. But you see, the, 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 when we say that all knowledge is derived from self-perception, this seems to be the, the, a very complete statement, but it's not true. It's not true, actually. And when, we, when I say that the whole of, of my knowledge is based on experience, that is true, yes, if you add something to that. Experience, but it's based on experience, but not just my experience. It isn't true. Think about it. We don't approach the, the world. Locke said there was a tabula rasa, a, a clean blackboard, a clean slate, 
and the, 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 our empirical experience just imprinted itself on this clean set. Not so. No, 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 no. We do not approach the world on, on anything uh, with, with a clean slate, with a completely empty brain. We have concepts in, 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 which uh, Kant thought they might be inborn. I don't think they're inborn. We're talking here about the collective experience of the whole human race. We're talking here about the experience of 2,000 years of scientific investigation and discovery. And armed and equipped with this knowledge, we approach and interpret the world. You see? And therefore, the idea that uh, uh, the mistake of, of, of dualism, the mistake of, of Kant, was to conceive of cons uh, first of all, conceive of consciousness as something separate from the material, which it is not. Which it is not, and to conceive of it as some, some as a barrier. It's not a barrier; it's a bridge. Actually, it connects us to the external world, and we interpret this world. You don't a scientist when he carries out uh, experiments. Of course, he bases himself on observation, what he can see, and an experiment, which he uh, he, he compares his uh, hypotheses to certain. Experimental results, that's true. Yes, but he doesn't approach these with an empty brain. That's a, that's a piece of arrant nonsense. You know, here we come back to the limitations of empiricism. We come up, up against this constantly as Marxists, you know. We told, uh, we must have the facts. Let's have the facts. Yes, of course, you must have the facts. We should have a very exhaustive study of the facts. By God, you read the first volume of Marxist Capital, it's replete with facts, statistics of all sorts. The more facts, the better. Yes, but it isn't just facts. It isn't just a mere accumulation of facts. Hegel said, I think it's in the philosophy of history. He says, it, 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 is, it is the wish, this is the important statement, it is the wish for a rational insight and not the mere accumulation of a heap of acquirements of facts that should that ought to possess the mind of anyone that is uh, that claims to be a scientist that claims to be involved in science. Hegel also says somewhere else when we say all animals, that's not that's not yet zoology, is it? All animals is not zoology. You require you need to work out the laws, the underlying processes, and so on. And by the way, the reality which we see is is uh, constantly changing. That's another thing. It's constantly changing. So you know, when we, we the facts, the facts don't stand still. First of all, first of all, these are the facts, the facts, the facts. Yeah. First of all, you know the facts don't select themselves. I once had a debate with a man called Orlando Figs. I don't know how to pronounce him. One of these university academic clowns. He's produced a big, thick book on Russia. It's up on the shelf. This it's about I don't know many how, how many thousands of, of pages full of facts, carefully selected facts. All this this mountain of of, of quotes and facts and, and the rest of it is meant to show a, a, a thorough knowledge of scientific. It doesn't show any such thing. The facts do not select themselves. They are selected, and they're not selected accidentally either. And before a scientist approaches the facts, he must first of all work out a scientific hypothesis. Where does the hypothesis come from? It doesn't drop from the clouds. It doesn't suck it out of his thumb. No, it's based precisely on the accumulated wealth of knowledge of 2,000 years of science. That's the point. Therefore, uh, cognition is not, uh, not merely a static thing that we sit there passively absorbing a, a, a bunch of facts. You probably do that on the even exam, don't you? <laughs> Cramming, I think it's called. Swatting. I remember we used to go into an exam and uh, my Latin teacher came up one time. We were all trying to learn everything we failed to learn for the past two years or whatever it was. And he said in an ironic voice, if you don't know it now, you'll never know it. <laughs> Which is a way of encouraging somebody just going to an example. You know, you, you can cram your, your mind with as much facts as you like. It doesn't make you a scientific historian or anything else. No, you have to get a knowledge, as, as Hegel said, a rational insight, insight. That is what's required. And by the way, these facts change. That's the point also. 
you look at the present world situation, you might draw the most pessimistic conclusions. Yeah, that, that, that's fair enough. That's a fair observation. The world is in a, in a calamitous, disastrous state. But if you just confine yourself to that, then you're making a big mistake. We must look beyond appearances. Hegel in his great book, The Logic, he, he develops a, the, a theory of, 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 of perception, of cognition. It starts with sense perception. Yes, you start with the facts. But if you stop at that level, then you make a big mistake then you will never penetrate uh, any further than that. You have to go further beyond appearance. He says you have to go to look for essence, the doctrine of essence, and finally the doctrine of the notion, which is the, the, a, a dialectical idea that everything is constantly changing, and therefore what may be a, a fact, a correct fact now, it will change into its opposite. You know, he said, well, you know, uh, the facts, well, for example, let, let's just put a fact up. For example, it is now midday, sun is shining and so on. All right, write this fact on a bit of paper and put it in the drawer. A, fa a, a truth will not change because it's put, in, put aside in the drawer and left. But within a few months, within a few uh, hours, you find that it's changed into, it's now night. This fact is stale, it's finished, it's gone, it's changed into its opposite. And therefore, that, that is the, the limitations of empiricism, the limitations of self, sense perception, which is really a low form of, uh, of knowledge. All this was dealt with thoroughly and very, very well by, by, by Hegel, and therefore I won't, uh, I won't uh, deal with that any further. But despite, uh, and of course Marx then approached to Hegel's great work, uh, pointed out that that was limited by his idealist approach, and, but, but what Marx did was, as he said, he, he extracted the logical, the rational kernel of, of Hegel's thought and placed it on a sound basis, on a scientific basis, on a materialist basis. That's where we stand, okay? That's how And that's the only possible way of approaching, uh, uh, acquiring a scientific knowledge of anything, of nature, of human society, or of human thought, if it comes to that. Now, you see... I've got a supreme contempt, I have to tell you, I must admit that. I've got a supreme disdain towards uh, academia in general, academics in particular, and philosophy departments above all. I mean, poor young people, probably some of you are, are among their ranks. I feel sorry for you, you know. You go to university and you go to the sign on the philosophy, thinking that you learn no great thoughts about philosophy, you learn nothing whatsoever. You learn nothing whatsoever in the philosophy department, except the barrenness, the sterility, the uselessness of modern bourgeois philosophy. The latest craze of postmodernism, they say, there's no such thing as progress. Well, yes, of course. If what they mean by that is that the capitalist system is now in such a dead end that it's incapable of any progress, that would be correct. What is not correct, what is arrant nonsense, is to claim that progress does not, there's no such thing as progress. I beg your pardon. There is such a thing as progress in history. You can understand human history, you know. It has a logic, it has a rationale, which uh, dialectical and historical materialism serves to explain. It really is a bit of a cheek, isn't it? It really is. It is an insult to the intelligence, you know. But here we are in the, in the 21st century. We can, we can apparently understand and explore and, and, and lay bare the, the workings of the most distant galaxies, okay? And of the tiniest subatomic particles. But when it comes to the study of, our, of human society, no, 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 can't understand that. Can't understand that. As somebody once said, it's just one damn thing after another, <laughs> and so on. Now, this is arrant nonsense of the worst sort. No, no, no. You can understand history. What they don't want to, is, is to draw the conclusion that distinct historical, uh, socio-historical, socio-economic formations, such as capitalism, are born, developed, reached a point of maturity, and then enter into, into irreversible decline. Oh, yes. That decline is, is shown in many ways, not just economics, economic collapse and so on. 
It's also a, a broader question of intellectual decline, moral decline. Yes, oh yes, that, that, all this is, is clear if you look at it. In fact, the symptoms of today are strikingly similar to the symptoms of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Very strikingly. be interesting to write on this subject, perhaps we'll do that sometime or other. But it's reflected in philosophy. And what we have now is the re-emergence of long dead ideas that ought to be dead, ought to have been dead and buried a long time ago in different disguises. Presenting, parading themselves as new ideas. This is really something. When you know perfectly well, there's nothing new about them, for goodness sake. These guys, are, have, they haven't got a shred of originality. None of them have got a shred of, a, of originality. None of them. Let me give you an example. When I went to university, for my sins, I spent uh, seven or eight years in what at that time was an elite university, by the way. I did some philosophy. I soon realized it was a load of crap. Even in my first year, I understood that. The dominant school at that time is a bit less so today. It doesn't matter. A, because they have the same roots. They have the same ancestry, precisely. But at that time, it was called logical positivism. Now, these ideas really were answered comprehensively by Lenin in 1909 in a marvelous book, which I mentioned earlier, Materialism and Empiricism. You must read this, please. Yeah, but subjective idealism, which he demolished in this book, there's no, come, there's no coming back to, to, to these arguments, and kicked out of the front door, the same idea sneaked back around the side and crept in through, through a window and re-emerged in different forms. For example, logical positivism. In Britain, by the way, it was uh, very popular. When I was a student, this is the 1960s I'm talking about, it persisted for quite a long time, actually. The leading advocate in Britain's man called Professor A.J. Eyre, who wrote a, a famous book called Language of Truth and Logic. You know. Now, Eyre's basic uh, thesis is the same as what Lenin answered in Empiricism, the same thing. Same thing that, that Bishop Barclay argued much better than Eyre, much more entertainingly and wittily uh, in the 17th century. What is was the central the central assertion? The central assertion is, what can I know? I can only know sense contents. Same argument as Bishop Park, but there's no different language doesn't make any difference. Okay, sense contents, and uh, I must go in the, in the first. I came home after my first term in Sussex University, 1963. I went to, Sw to Swansea, which is my home. I went to Swansea University Library. I took down a copy of Language, Truth, and Logic. I sat in the library and I, start, I started to read this book carefully. And the people must have thought I was quite mad because at a certain point I just burst out laughing. I literally burst out laughing. I'd already read the materialism and I was quite well prepared for this. But if you read Ayer's book, it's very logical, you know. It follows with impeccable iron logic from one chapter to the other. It, it, expanding on why we can only know our sense, sense contents, this sense contents, that. And so I said, okay, let us see now. I'm just waiting. I'm waiting now for the moment, the decisive moment. When chapter 12, was it? I can't remember. A certain chapter. Ah, here we are. The, the chapter was entitled, What are sense contents? Now then, I said, now you bastard, now I've got you. And I did. You know, because he wriggled like an eel, this, that, and the other. And he, finally, that, that, that was a jumble of, of, of senseless nonsense. And he ends up saying, now that we've proven this, let's go on to the next part. I said, you've proven nothing, you bastard. Nothing at all. Look, let's call a spade a shepherd, please. Let's, let's, I tell you what, let's put the question in simple language. Such could be understood even by a university philosophy professor. And if there's any of them listening into this, well, I, I wish you luck. But I want an answer to this, okay? Very simple question. Can there be sense contents without a central nervous system? Can there be a central nervous system without a brain? Can there be a brain and a nervous system without a material body? And can there be a material body without a physical environment? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, well, we, we, we agree. In that case, what's all the fuss about? Please explain to me. 
What's all this convoluted nonsense about sense contents, please? Which is a load of gibberish. By the way, question, the second question, what use is this? Even if one were to accept it, which we do not, even if we were, what use is it? Just imagine a chemist which is involved in, in examining all kinds of molecules and so on and so forth. What does it matter to this chemist if you call these molecules, not, mole not molecules at all, my friend, but sense contents, good heavens above. What is this gibberish? What is, it, what is this senseless garbage that passes for philosophy? What use is it? That's the question. I answer, no use whatsoever, other than to garble the, brain, to garble the brains of unfortunate students of philosophy. And in some cases, I regret to say, scientists who've paid attention to this, this nonsense. I think we can safely leave this to one side. And certainly, these clever arguments, oh, they seem to be so clever, so sophisticated, and so on. Oh, yes, it's not, uh, we can't say that such, I can't say these books exist, they're just sense contents. I can't say that this roast beef in Yorkshire put it on my plate. It's not Yorkshire at all, it's the sense contents and so on. You know, I can, I can imagine the professor, AJ Emily sits down in, in his posh restaurants eating his... Uh, Roast beef and Yorkshire pudding. Uh, he still eats it, by the way. He doesn't. He, he's not bothered by the fact that he's only eating sense contents. Not, but doesn't trouble him in the slightest. Same as it doesn't trouble 99.99999% of the human population. This nonsense, which is with this drivel, which comes from the university, it really makes me annoyed. You know, and I'll tell you why it makes me annoyed. Because for all its clever and sophisticated appearance, this is a mode of thinking which is childish in the most literal sense of the word. Childish in the most literal sense of the word. Let me prove it. Look, it corresponds to a very early stage, in, in, in primitive stage in our intellectual development as a baby, okay, as a baby that can't talk. By the way, how does this baby relate to the real world? This is an interesting point. Just a, a slight observation. You see, we do not only think with our brains, actually. We think with our whole body. We relate to our material environment with our whole body. How does a, how does a child get to know this environment? What is, how, how does the theory of, 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 uh, of knowledge apply to a young baby? How does a child get to know anything? I'll tell you why. He gets to know the material world by putting it in his mouth and trying to eat it. That's how. Oh, yes. And cognition is not a passive thing. You sit there and the, the, the facts implant themselves. No, 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 no. It's an active thing. We interact with our environment, with our whole body, not just with our mind. That's, a, that's the prejudice of the intellectual uh, eunuchs in the universities, you know. Let's, let's, let's tread on a few corns here. Let's cause a bit of offense. Why not? I'm not in a, I'm not in a forgiving mood this morning. I've been considered this guff. Okay. You know, a carpenter, we know what a carpenter produces. He produces tables and all kinds of things. We know what a bricklayer produces too. We know what a coal miner produces. You know, we know what a metal worker produces. What does an academic produce? I'll tell you, words, words. You know, it reminds me of a Shakespeare's Hamlet, you know? Somebody, Polonius, then comes into Hamlet, he says, what are you reading, my Lord? And he answers, words, words, words. And that's all they produce. The sum total of their existence is words. It's like the Bible, you know? It's what's which 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 gospel is that? John, I think. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God was with God, and the word was God. That's the words are their God. That's why they reduce everything to words. This trivial nonsense. Oh, the definition of that, and the definition of the other. Oh, and this is politically correct, and you can't say this, and you must use it. as if by changing the word you change the thing. You do not. And this nonsense really has percolated. It's just, it, is, it is a corrosive influence on the brains of unfortunate students. And, and it's even spread beyond that. It's got, it's got political and practical consequences even. But let's go back to what I said. Childish in the most literal sense. Why? 
when a, when, when a, mother, a mother leaves the room, the child begins to cry. Why does it begin? Because it assumes that because the mother is no longer there to be seen, she doesn't exist anymore. That's true. It's, it's, that's an actual stage in, in our mental development. We've all passed through that stage. Some of us have left it behind a long time ago, but not in the philosophy departments. They're still very much trapped at this infantile stage of mental development. But in any case, it's, uh, this is a product of the unhealthy environment of, of the petty bourgeoisie in the universities. And subjective idealism is very much in vogue. It always will be in vogue with these characters because the, the petty bourgeois is a natural egotist, you know, whereas the working class is a, a relatively homogenous class. So is the bourgeoisie, but the middle class is not. Extremely heterogeneous. In individual businesses and so on, my business, my career, my individuality, my feelings, my oppression, that's the latest one. My rage against an unfair world which does not understand me and so on and so forth. You know, this is, and of course to these people, the uh, it summarizes the, the egotistical outlook of the petty bourgeois intelligentsia, which determines its entire psychology. And it's not hardly surprising therefore, that subjective idealism is alive and well in the philosophical habitat of universities. It holds the same fascination for the petty bourgeois thinker as a pot of honey does for a fly or certain other natural substances I will not mention. And I repeat, and I insist upon this, even from the standpoint of utility, one would have to say that this, these theories are absolutely useless. It cannot advance our knowledge one by, by one single millimeter. And, and so, you know, it's, uh, we have to say what, what we said, what we're against, what are we for? Now, the first question is, is what is known? And the second part of the question is, how do we know it? And uh, this is what epistemology attempts to answer, but it comes up with the wrong answer. If you, by the way, in, in general, if you ask the correct question, you can very often come up with the correct answer. If you ask, answer, ask the wrong question, you'll invariably come up with the wrong answer. There's not two ways to do it. But it's an elementary proposition, I've said that, <clears throat> that I interpret the world through, through, through my senses. But it's not a question of individual human experience, but, but of collective experience. And how do we know that the world exists? And how do we know this? And how? Well, you know it, my friends, not from meaningless, senseless debates about language in university seminars. You, you just what you learn there is the stupidity of people who go to university seminars. No, no, no. Human knowledge is is built up over a period of a long time of actual practice. Marx and Engels. Marx actually wrote, I think, in his thesis on Feuerbach marvelously profound work. She said that the question of the existence of the material world is, is merely a scholastic, a scholastic question. That's all it is. It's only of interest of scholastic, you know, little things please little minds, frankly. The real question is practice, human, and by the way, not individual practice, collective practice. The practice of the whole of society, which transforms nature and, and in the process, transforms society and transforms, we transform ourselves in the process. We transform ourselves in the process. And the process of cognition, it is a process precisely of ever deepening knowledge of the universe, of society and of ourselves. That's what it is. Such that, and that was Kant's big mistake. He said, well, he, you know, Kant confused two, two, two expressions, two words, two sentences. They are different sentences. Let's consider. First sentence. Uh, I do not know. Well, there's many things I don't know. Many, many, many things that we do not know yet. The second sentence, I cannot know. Now then, that's a different question. We don't accept this. We don't accept any absolute barrier on human knowledge and cognition. None but, we don't accept the thing in itself. And it's precisely the, the concrete, specific, practical advance of humanity 
and science and technology, which which advances, uh, which breaks down one mystery after another. That's what they don't like. The so-called mysteries that we could not understand. Yeah, they were mysteries in the past. They're not mysteries now. They they might have been the thing in itself for Kant, but they're, they're the thing for us now. Because we constantly proceed. There's a constant process here. It's a constant struggle of humanity, the human race, to pass from ignorance to knowledge. And this process, my friends, will never end. It's never ending. You'll never get a series where you can say, oh, now we know everything. That would be a very sad day, wouldn't it be? No, no, it's a constant striving. And there'll always be new horizon, horizons. They're now talking about putting a man on the, or a woman, if it comes to that, on, on Mars. Well, good luck to them. Eventually, we'll be putting somebody on, a, on another galaxy. At the moment, it's unthinkable. Yes, how many things were unthinkable for us 50 years ago? Many, many things were unthinkable. Not, think, not now. In other words, it's not what Kant considers a thing, in, an unknowable thing in itself. Now is a thing for us, to use Hegel's um, expression. Now I have to draw uh, a line here, not because of lack of material. We have plenty of plenty of notes here to speak for another hour. But let's just try and draw the threads together. Uh, the whole history of humanity is a history of a constant struggle, from the from the days of the cavemen and women. You know, I always think of the the, 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 the picture that sticks in my mind of a, a man or a woman, it might have been a woman, struggling in pitch dark blackness in a cave, the interior of a cave, the flickering light of an animal fat lamp and painting these wonderful paintings of animals, of bisons, of antelopes and so on, have never been found, never been surpassed. That, that, and that's a struggle in order to get to, to get to that place was a struggle. The whole of human life since then has been one constant struggle from darkness to light. Don't tell me that there's no progress, please. That's the sniveling pessimism and skepticism of the petty bourgeois, which, which, is, which, is a, which is a slave to capitalist society and can't see further than its own nose. I've got no time for this. On the contrary, the human race has shown itself to be capable of great things. We are, we are capable of great things now, despite everything, the pandemic, the crisis. Lenin said that capitalism is horror without end. He's quite right. Yes, but capitalism also has produced. Let's give the devil his due. The last 300 years has produced marvels of science and technology, such that the material conditions for a new society now exist. On a world scale, you know, there's no, 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 no real need now for anyone to starve to death in this planet. There's no need at all. There's no need for anyone to be without a house, a roof over his head, or many other things. Okay, but what is required is to put an end to this decadent system and its ideology. These are decadent ideas, reactionary ideas. Oh yes, that's why Lenin insisted that we have to have an ideological struggle, not just a struggle for higher wages and a struggle for better conditions and a struggle against oppression. Of course, all those things are necessary. We also need a struggle against reactionary bankrupt ideas. We must wage a war against these ideas. Drive them out with sticks and stones because they're an obstacle. They drag us back. They reduce the, con they lower the consciousness. Of, of revolutionaries can be effect, infected by this poisonous nonsense. We need to overthrow the system in order, for what? In order to establish a new kind of human civilization. And that means for the first time, in over 10,000 years of so-called civilization, for the first time ever, the great majority of men and women who, who, who've been excluded from culture, Excluded from education, excluded from civilization, excluded from democracy of the truth are to be told, but the first time can really take their destinies into their own hands and consciously determine their own future. Now, this is a gigantic step forward. Yes, I would say also in cognition, not in seminar departments and irrelevant chatter among the chattering classes, but gen a genuine cultural revolution, a genuine advance of the whole of human race the whole of the human race, to expand our knowledge, to deepen our knowledge of our planet, of the earth that we live in, 
and which we are destroying at the moment, that's got to cease. Of the seas, the oceans, the depth, it was a poorly understood. And of ourselves, our brain, that's the most complex thing in the universe known to us, which we, again, poorly understand. And by expanding our knowledge to establish a qualitatively higher level of human existence, which will permit, for example, a genuine equality between men and women, to, to, to relate to each other as genuine, as human beings, not to an animal existence. This is an animal existence. No more than that for the great majority. No, no. We are struggling here for a higher form of society. And part of that, a big part of that at this stage, is a, a ferocious struggle, a, str a merciless, ruthless struggle against reactionary, retrograde ideas and thinking for the wonderful ideas, the profound ideas, the beautiful ideas, which are only represented by Marx, Engels, Lenin, Trotsky, our own tendency, is based upon these ideas. And these are the ideas which will enable us, which will enable our class eventually to triumph. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.